توی کوچه رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خواهرت خواهرامون برای سلام in the name of the god of rainbows welcome to woman life freedom all in on iran a podcast series in which we'll go deep in conversations with experts on various aspects of the revolutionary uprising that began in Iran in September when 22-year-old Mahsa Jina Amini was killed in morality police detention. In each episode, we'll unpack an important aspect of the unfolding of this historic moment in Iran. I'm your host, Nahid Siamdus, an assistant professor of media and Middle East studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Our intention is to quote-unquote archive the important insights of our experts here and now, both in their capacity as professional observers as well as humans living through these momentous times. Stay tuned. This week we'll be speaking with Asif Ayad, who needs no introduction when it comes to a study and discussion of social movements and revolutions across the Middle East. He is Professor of Sociology and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and has published what by now are really classics, his 1997 Street Politics, his 2009 Life as Politics, How Ordinary Citizens Changed the Middle East, Revolution Without Revolutionaries, about the Arab Spring, and his latest Revolutionary Life, published by Harvard University Press last year. But first, let's situate ourselves in the timeline. Every week, I'll try to situate us a little bit in the timeline of the protests of the Women Life Freedom protests that started in September. So the most momentous things that happened, events that happened this past week, today is February 6th, 2023. So last night, Sherin Hajipur, the producer and musician of the song Baroye, received a Grammy announced by the First Lady Jill Biden. It's the first Grammy given out under the category of social change. And Baroye is the song that soundtracks this podcast. This particular version is sung by Ifa. So it's a, a metal musician in Germany who actually came of age in Iran making music, but has done a cover of Baroye. There's so many different covers of Baroye at this point. The song has become truly universal, sung in all kinds of different languages and contexts all over the world. And Hajipur received a Grammy for this song, which at this point, every Iranian knows by heart. So that's that's the most momentous thing that's happened this, this past week. It's all over social media and everybody is claiming a little victory in the revolutionary uprising that has been happening, even if small in comparison to the bigger picture. The other important thing that's happened is that Iran's most prominent reformist, Mir Hossein Mousavi, who's been under house arrest since the 2009 Green Uprising and the elections then, he has issued, at the time he was really arguing for, and reformists have been for a long time, for sticking to the constitution, arguing that things could be reformed if we only listen to the spirit and the letter of the law in Iran's existing constitution. He's issued an open letter basically saying, he no longer believes that and that he believes that a whole new system, a whole new constitution must be constructed and a referendum held in order to you know, compose a assembly that would uh, lead and direct this new movement. 
So that's kind of a turnaround for sure among the reformists. And Khatami has in some ways also backed this, although he seems to still argue that also in a letter that has been published, he seems to believe that it, you know things could still be fixed if we only stuck to the constitution. I know some of these debates are moot for many people who have for long now surpassed any kind of reformist discourse, but it's still of note to mention here. So now let's move on to our guest interview. Hello, today on the Women Life Freedom Podcast, All In on Iran, we have Professor Asif Bayot. He's currently the Catherine and Bruce Bastian Professor of Global and Transnational Studies and Professor of Sociology and Middle Eastern Studies at Urbana-Champaign University of Illinois. He was previously Professor of Sociology and Middle Eastern Studies and Chair of Society and Culture of the Middle East at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Now, you've got your bachelor's in political science in 1977, so just a a couple of years before the revolution happened in Iran in 1979, and your PhD in social sciences from Kent University in England in 1984. You've held positions in a wide spectrum of academic institutions from Berkeley to Columbia, Oxford to Brown. And of course, starting in 1986, you taught sociology at the American University of Cairo for 17 years. Yes, yes. So you had a long stretch of time <laughs> that you spend in Egypt. So you're one of those rare social scientists who has clear insights into both the politics of, you know, the sort of Iranian sphere and the Arab states. Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast, Professor Bayat. Yeah, thank you so much, Nahid. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, before we start this conversation, I just want to say your work has helped me think through the processes that I've been looking at in my own work. And you have so many different concepts that have been so helpful throughout the years. You know, whether it's the idea of quiet encroachment, which you have in life as politics, how ordinary people change the Middle East, you're you know, published by Stanford University Press in 2013, the idea that people through ordinary everyday acts can push back certain boundaries and really lead to the change in certain regulations. You know, your idea of social non-movements, which I personally have applied to the easing of the hijab rules in Iran over the last the 20 or more years in which people, not you know, women, not through organized movements, but through this sort of daily actions of non-movement have really pushed back and changed the restrictions on the hijab or, you know, the combination term, the portmanteau revolution, the combination terms of revolutions, not, not a revolution, not a reform, but somewhere in the middle. And then for my own work, you're writing on anti-fundamentalism, you know, highlighting the fun in the middle and how the Islamic Republic has been fundamentally against fun has been useful for my own writing on music and culture. And of course, your work on post-Islamism, you're also 2013 book on post-Islamism and the different faces of Islamic activity and how self-societies such as the Iranian in many ways have, have moved beyond Islamism, which is so relevant to our conversations of post-revolutionary 
the later period of post-revolutionary Iranian sphere and most certainly the woman life freedom movement. And of course, revolution without revolutionaries making sense of the Arab Spring in your book from 2017. So there's so much to talk about with you. And I couldn't really think of a better guest for my podcast for the as better first guest for my for my podcast series. So thank you again. I do want to take us back to, you know, part of my aim in this podcast series is to kind of try to weave in the personal into the political a little bit, something that we don't really do much in academia. And I think that robs us of certain kinds of understanding. And I think you actually do that really well in your work because you're examining social movements from the street level up. It's really inherent in your work, I think. And so I just want to start really on the personal front with yourself and just ask you a little bit, you know, what was it like as a person in your 20s, coming of age sort of in pre-revolutionary Iran, getting a bachelor's in political science, no less. What kind of world were you inhabiting as a a 20-something-year-old in 1970s Iran? What did it feel like to be alive then in that period? What did it feel like to be an Iranian in that period? Where was your mind politically? Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Nahid. This is a wonderful opportunity for me not only to talk about the current work, the scholarship and so on, and its relation to what's happening, you know, in the region, in Iran these days and so on, but also how one intellectual landscape is formed. So this is a great opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. For having me here to talk about these issues. Mm-hmm. So really, my sort of trajectory or Shall I say my status in my twenties, for instance, in Tehran, in some ways, been formed by the way in which you know I have I have grown up and where I grew up. Just maybe I should kind of flash mm-hmm. back a bit. You know, yes, I please. actually was mm-hmm. born in a very small village, mm-hmm. not more than 150 people in the area Shahriar, which is close to Tehran. And in a small village, we didn't have really no sort of modern <laughs> amenities of you know running water, electricity, or nothing, or no roads and so forth. So it was basically a bunch of of sharecroppers. And then when the land reform came, because uh, my my kind of family did not have, they were not agricultural people. They were Khoshneshin. He was a shop owner. Consequently, we didn't have land. So we were one of those kind of waves of sort of landless agricultural people who were forced to actually, at the time we said, migrate, muhajirat mikonan, to Tehran, which we ended up in, you know, in South Tehran. And I think part of also moving from the village was because the school went up to fourth grade. And after that, when I reached, there was no school, and I remained schoolless for oh. about six months. Yeah, and my father, who only could read and write, and he mm-hmm. was a truck driver mm-hmm. at night, he would teach me and so forth. So we landed in, in South Tehran. So I kind of brought that sort of baggage of being a sort of a village guy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, entering into city with mm-hmm. its all, you know, intrigues, with its all uh, dynamics, which I really loved it. Interestingly, despite the fact that I was from a very small village, I just loved this big city energy and, and light and and, and uh, its complex dynamics. So mm-hmm. from the very really mm-hmm. first moments, I became really interested in cities, mm-hmm. how, how they work and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also as a person of, as I said, a, a, a migrant with uh, having an accent you know, in Tehran and trying to fit into the kind of urban world, I was very conscious about my position 
about the position of sort of marginalized people and the, I could hear, you know, mm-hmm. the way people were talking about mm-hmm. or uh, in villagers Egypt, they call, or... villagers, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> in Egypt, they call it fallahin. Even if, even if these people have been living there for <laughs> years and just <laughs> look at mm-hmm. their sort of habitus, their, the way in which they carry themselves and, mm-hmm. their, and, and their way of life and so forth, put them in that category. So I was one of them. So I became in some way aware very sensitive, really, from the the moment, really, we began to live there, about kind of social issues, about the stratification, about marginalization, and and yet, and yet, they're very fascinated, you know, by the world in which I had entered. I did my, of course, high school there, interestingly, in an Islamic school. Uh, which was very fascinating to me. So I became very religious. In fact, it was the one that we were forced to pray in the school, mm-hmm. collect a player, Namo the Jamo at. Wow, Asif Jan, just so you were part of this wave of urbanization that happened in the 60s and 70s in Iran. Exactly. Um, and then you found yourself sort of in this marginal positionality. I just want to ask you the high school that you went to, is that the one, if I remember correctly, the one next to Hosseini Ershad? Or... No, that, no. no, that was uh, later. That was later. So when okay. we moved, yeah. Okay. The one in the South Tehran was Jami mm-hmm. uh, Talimi. Mm-hmm. It was, I, I would say, Islamists. Okay. Who, yeah, mm-hmm. it was that way of sort of changing the youth, what they said, socializing them into, you know, religious upbringing and so forth in the schools. You know, we had collective prayer, we had alternative sort of entertainment, we were not supposed to go to see movies and so forth. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing was supposed to be spent really in the school. <laughs> right. And I became really very religious at the time. And mm-hmm. uh, I used to do collective prayer, I had to do Adon, you know, on mm-hmm. the rooftops and so forth. But after <laughs> a few years, I got really felt the pressure of this indoctrination and mm-hmm. I kind of rebelled. And I told my father, no, I'm not going to go to the school anymore. Okay. And that was the time that we were we moved and uh, we moved to Bolhak mm-hmm. or where my father had found a new job there. So that's the new school where you know I went, which was close to Hosseini uh, Ershad. Mm-hmm. And then I went to university and so forth. In the university, I found a lot of people like myself who were from sort of hinterlands, from provincial areas, villagers, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And we kind of, you know, we found each other in some mm-hmm. way. And they were, can yeah. I just give you a little pause for those who might not know the significance of Hossein Yershad, where Ali Shariati, of course, gave his famous sort of pre-revolutionary lectures that really revolutionized a lot of, especially sort of Islamist-leaning, yes. um, since we mentioned Hossein Yershad a lot. But so at in university, then you found a lot of other kids like yourself who have come from the margins. Yeah, exactly. And so we found each other and uh, we sort of formed uh, somewhat kind of reading groups and uh, we began to uh, be critical uh, of what was uh, happening. And as I said, I had been very religious and I became very anti-religious. I became really the other side uh, I began to read Darwin and historical materialism. I kind of left this sort of a literature. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I became really leftist. Towards the end of my studies, things began to change in Iranian society at the time. So that was kind of a late 70s or so. And, you know, the demonstra- not demonstrations, the first sort of sign of letter writings by intellectuals mm-hmm. began. And the Gotha Institute, you know, forum, I don't know if you, I'm sure you have read about it, 10 Day of yeah. uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Ten days of ten nights of poetry reading, which became very political, and we just did it in ten so forth.、Mm-hmm. So that was the context, really. So it was a time for people like us, time of very interesting dynamism, hope. So that was a time also of oil boom and、mm-hmm. rapid sort of modernization in the cities, new consumer commodities,、mm-hmm. but at the same time very repressive.、Mm-hmm. So socially, economically, at the time,、uh, Iranian society was changing very dramatically,、mm-hmm. and you know certain groups, middle classes, were becoming, I would say, quite well off. Literacy was going up,、mm-hmm. but politically, we felt very, very sort of repressive. Mm-hmm. And I think that combination is something that Professor Abrahamian early on sort of highlighted this、mm-hmm. this kind of uneven development. He says that you had the economic development but political underdevelopment. And I think that was correct formulation. And you know, the you just mentioned sort of you went from being more drawn into an Islamist current into going toward a leftist chappy sort of current.、And、I'm just curious, was the Political pull or social pull into those two directions, which would be the two strongest pulls, of course, the political currents that led to the revolution. Ultimately, would you say they were kind of equal, or which one, which one had the greater ideological attraction? Would you say in the 1970s of Iran? That's a very good question. I think my own experience, in the way that you know, I became religious, I became sort of religious. Not、mm-hmm. necessarily political religious. You see what I mean.、Mm-hmm. So, in other words, my religiosity in the school and the way in which we were sort of trained、uh, mm-hmm. were more sort of pious, fundamentalist pi- piety.、Mm-hmm. Still, there wasn't much of a talk of、uh, politics.、Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, leftism, however, was very. Was clearly, of course, political, and it has、mm-hmm. a blueprint. What direction was strategy, and so on and so forth.、Mm-hmm. I would say that at the time, as I have actually written about, Iran was in, in a situation where Islamization, in the political sense, really had begun, and that process was stopped. By an Islamic revolution,、mm-hmm. in other words, political Islam, I would say, in the 1970s, was not as strong as has been claimed in retrospect in post-revolution. Interesting. I, I think largely what transpired after the revolution, it was transpired after the revolution, after the change、mm-hmm. in the state.、Hmm. So we, you know, as the leftist people. And also、mm-hmm. liberals and others,、uh, mm-hmm. you know, participate of course wholeheartedly in, in the revolution. But the outcome, of course, we never expected. You know, this、mm-hmm. to be a religious sort of state, which then unleashed, you know, Islamization largely from from the top. Interesting. So yeah, so political Islam, I would say, was not terribly strong, especially when you compare it, which I did, with what was going on later on. Shall we say in Egypt? I mean, political Islam just before. I mean, in, in sort of shall we say in the eighties and nineties was very powerful,、uh, whereas in Iran of the nineteen seventies necessarily was not that really strong. That's an interesting insight. I mean, people and social scientists are still trying to really make sense of the nineteen seventy nine revolution, right? Forty three yeah, years, almost forty four years later, people、true. are still grappling with it. And every now and then, you hear the formulation. 
you know, that the revolution was hijacked by the Islamists because of the leadership of, you know, a charismatic leader like Ayatollah Khomeini. And so it sounds like based on your description of 1970s Iran, that kind of formulation might not be such an, yeah, such an exaggeration. Yeah, I mean, of course. I mean, one perhaps, uh, you know, one criticism that one can level against hijacking is Mm -hmm. that there was a plan that they would do it. They knew it, what they were, they knew it, what they were doing, and then they implemented it. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. this is too simplistic. Um, Mm -hmm. But the processes, however, the process, what happened in some way allotted, you know, for those people who wanted to take the direction of a revolution in a certain direction, Mm -hmm. uh, it really happened. So Mm -hmm. I think we should be, uh, methodologically, we should be paying good attention to you know, the existing forces that were grappling with uh, what they wanted and the dynamics between them, both internally and international factors and so on, that eventually sort of led to that outcome. You see what I mean? Right, of course. But but there are, of course, now, uh, you know, stories and uh, memoirs that people uh, have been written. And uh, for instance, at the constitution that had been written, drafted, that is, in Paris, and Ayatollah Khomeini apparently had signed it and had approved it, they didn't have anything with respect to Walaitafapi or religious right. rule, nothing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, he wanted to actually place it onto the referendum. But then Mehdi Bazargan, who was a kind of liberal religious person, and he basically argued that, look, Ayatollah Khomeini, we have promised people to ratify a constitution within an assembly. Mm -hmm. So we should do that. And I read, actually, apparently Ayatollah uh, Rafsanjani had told him that if you did that, then the clerics will change the whole thing. Wow. Hmm. So that's very interesting. (laughs) If this is true, it's very Mm -hmm. insightful. Mm -hmm. Exactly, this is really what happened when it went to constituent assembly. Mm-hmm. which a large number of them, they, mm-hmm. which it wasn't clerics. actually yeah. Uh, clerics. Yeah, it wasn't mm-hmm. in Majestic Pregon. Right. And the rest is, of course, history. Right, the expert assembly. Right. So there was, of course, a tendency that part of you know certain segments of the new elites to pull the revolution in sort of Islamist direction. But then they would have to ask, you know, why they were successful and you know, how come they were successful? Why others were not successful? I think mm-hmm. these are the questions that when we talk mm-hmm. about revolution, we should mm-hmm. pay attention to. Where Where is this account? Wh- which account? The account that you just talked about in terms of Rafsanjani saying, if you give this to the Constituent oh, Assembly, yeah. Because there is now a discussion about what is happening and, the, and a new mm-hmm. declaration that Khatami has given and so on. So there are actually, right. I, I read a couple of days ago uh, mm-hmm. on this. Yeah. Interesting. So I'm just wondering, so if, if we're to ask the question, why did they, why were they successful in pushing this through? Well, how, how could they really eliminate these competing factors so easily? Do you think in the end that given that Islam was a part of a majority of Iranians' lives, that that was perhaps the most trusted, I suppose, sort of religious and ideological force that people simply didn't think could do them harm? Is that, is that a fair way to express this? Well, I, I mean, partially, yes. I, I think um, the key thing is when there is a political breakthrough uh, happens, and I think that's very relevant to today's mm-hmm. you know, Iran 
two that one had to think about. When the political breakthrough takes place, one has to see which groups are the most capable and willing Mm -hmm. to actually Mm -hmm. take power. Because that's a time Mm -hmm. of, you know, competition to exert Mm -hmm. power, to exert hegemony. Uh, Mm -hmm. Despite Mm -hmm. the coalition that is often formed before the political breakthrough, before the collapse, right? Which everything is general, vague, and so on. We want a different future and so forth. But when the political breakthrough happens, when, you know, the collapse happened, then that's the moment to see, you know, who are the most capable. Uh, that usually they would really take over un- unless, unless prior to that, there is an agreement, there is a rational coalition that people get together and uh, agree on what to do and so on and so forth. If you don't have that, mm-hmm. and the coalition is basically imaginative, right, rather than real, mm-hmm. then the, the competition is pretty inevitable. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, mm-hmm. these days right now, mm-hmm. uh, the competition exists before the collapse. Maybe mm-hmm. that's okay. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. A variety of forces and so forth. Competition is inevitable, and conflict is inevitable. The point is when that happens, before the collapse or after. Now, it is before, right? Whereas in the Iranian Revolution of mm-hmm. 79, it was after. Yeah? Right. But as I said, the alternative to this imaginative um, coalition is a deliberative coalition. Mm-hmm. That is, people actually sit down and talk mm-hmm. and say, okay, we are different, but we agree on certain things. Mm-hmm. We go up to this this far and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we agree on whatever. And uh, when the new situation arises, then, for instance, we leave it to the elections and the will of the people and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So that could be kind of a deliberative, in some way, rational, negotiative sort of process. That's really interesting. So I guess the revolution perhaps was inconceivable enough in 1979 that people just didn't really organize enough about what shall happen afterwards. Whereas now there's so much anticipation of the kind of collapse that you talk about that there's there's a whole lot more conversation about what kind of coalition, what kind of groups might take over, even though without too much leadership. And of course, that's been something that's been at the center of a lot of these discussions and debates. I wanna I want to take us a little forward. And it's interesting to me because of course the question of whether the woman life freedom movement was a revolution or an uprising or has also been a very heated conversation with some people, you know, being very, very upset when the word revolution isn't used, as if sort of calling it a revolution will will it into being a revolution. And if, you know, calling it protests or uprisings in some ways takes away from the power and the sort of transformational nature of this movement. And I realize this is not a popular question to ask, so I won't ask you right away how you would describe this movement. We'll get there eventually, but I want to take us to 2009 because you have written about, you know, something like a revolution and, you know, these kinds of pushing back the boundaries in uh, on a very daily kind of basis that forces the system or forces the given circumstances and conditions to adapt and bring about certain kinds of changes in the social and political lives of people? I think the Green Movement of 2009 
was largely a, a reaction of a kind of popular reaction to the counter-reform onslaught of the Fari faction, mm-hmm. that is the the clerical hardline really faction that did not want to see the kind of reform that had been unleashed since 2000, the decade of 2000 by mm-hmm. the presidency of President Khatami and so on, to carry on. Mm-hmm. And they were very adamant that this would be an existential threat to the project of Vedatifari. Consequently, they fought against it. But one thing which people thought that they were doing was this fraud in the elections. And they basically reacted to that. But it wasn't just the, you know, the perception, fraud or perception of fraud, but the accumulation really of grievances, largely political grievances that they had, these people, that basically they wanted an accountable government. It was a democracy movement. It wasn't a movement to necessarily transcend and go beyond the existing system. They wanted to see the system more kind of democratized and to be more accountable. Today, however, it seems that that project is seen by people to not to work. That, in other words, this there is this perception that this system is not reformable. And this has been expressed also by a number of reformists themselves. Yeah, And that includes, of course, uh, Mir Hossein Musavi's new statement the day before yesterday. Uh, so in this sense, politically, at the political level, the current, I would say, episode, the uprising, is, is very different uh, from uh, the Green Movement. Even it's very different from, you know, 2000 and what was it, 17 and mm-hmm. 2019. Mir Hossein of course, the leader of the Green Movement, who's still under house arrest and former prime minister during the Iran-Iraq war and someone who has come around to issuing the statement that you just mentioned that the system is not reformable. I mean, of course, there's a regime change, you know, faction that has been very strong and, you know, in the US that is almost sort of ahistorical and pointing to the way in which the political situation in Iran has progressed over the last, let's say, 15 or so years. And they point to people who ever thought of reforms as being possible as having been completely sort of either naive or regime apologists. Do you think in 2009, it was still conceivable that this system could reform from within in a way in which, you know, it's elected elements as opposed to its appointed elements, right? Iran being a sort of a dual system at that point still, I think at this point we can safely assume that it's mostly an, an appointed and sort of engineered system. But do you think in 2009, it was still conceivable were people too naive to believe? Because this is millions of Iranians coming out on the streets and asking for those reforms, right? Were they naive to believe that it was possible still then? It's very difficult to answer this question because it didn't work, right? Now, we we know that it didn't work. Now, why it didn't work? Was it because people were naive or perhaps there were other factors involved. Let me just say that I'm not sure that necessarily it was naive because previously, prior to the Green Movement, there was a period where really the idea and ideals of reform gained incredible momentum. And I'm talking about after the elections of President Khatami. Mm -hmm. And I think some notable 
I think social and cultural openness, relatively, of course, did take place. And, you know, I used to go there very often and I could actually observe very significant changes that happened then over the previous decade. And the elections that took place and the, you know, in the parliament, parliament really changed and parliament was very critical of the policies of the non-elected bodies. And the press really became amazingly good and open and there were a time of social movements, women's movements, the youth movements, mm-hmm. and a lot of NGOization began and so forth, cultural openness. So there was a lot of debate. It, there was a time for a very serious debate about the nature of Islamist state and the critical voices were present in the public sphere and so on. So people could see that, you know, that elections actually matter and it gives results. And we can experience this result, right? Mm -hmm. And perhaps precisely for this reason that the other side was so adamant that the other side, I mean, the sort of the hardline, we say, Mm -hmm. or the, Mm -hmm. yeah, oh yes, without the FAPI side. Mm -hmm. So they felt the threat and basically they they decided that from there to stop it. So were they, were, you know, people, you know, naive? Well, there were evidence that things could actually change. But why, you know, it didn't continue, that's the, that's the fundamental question. So in other words, in a green movement, so the t- kind of resistance that took place was, of course, you know, adamantly nonviolent and kind of a mass movement and so forth. And I was thinking at the time, later on, sort of, try to compare it with what happened the Arab Spring of 2011, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, it's very difficult for me, you know, sitting outside and then expecting certain things. It is not necessarily, you know, very humble. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, is it possible for people who were on the street stay rather than go home? Uh, in fact, the security forces these days, they complain about the bravery of the new generation. Right. And in fact, they have expressed that, uh, you know, they don't afraid of us anymore, right? right? Whereas at the time, they were afraid, you know, they would disperse, despite the fact that there was a sort of really a massive sort of presence of people on the street. Right. If they had resisted, would, you know, change, would that lead to change? I don't know. It's very difficult to say. But what I'm trying to say is that I wonder if there could be a different way of sort of resisting or not. And of course, against me, certain reformists would say that actually people shouldn't have done it at all. Uh, And um, because that made the regime more aggressive and to push for its sort of claims and, you know, further take the society further towards kind of a a Islamist way of uh, governing. Right. It seems to me, you know, in 2009, that it really was a key moment. And it was very clear from Khamenei's speech, you know, the first speech he gave after the elections, that he was not going to give an inch and there was not going to be any kind of compromise or any any taking step toward anybody who thought that the elections were fraudulent. And instantly he referred back to 
his very well-established thinking of Farhangi and foreign intervention and all of that. And this is something that he's continued, of course, throughout these recent protests. I was going to say also, but, but beyond this, in terms of you know, how perhaps resistance could have happened, it was also limited, right? It was mm-hmm. largely, I would say, urban middle class sensibility and mm-hmm. their largely presence. Although we have heard things, mm-hmm. for instance, my own village, that mm-hmm. people were mm-hmm. pro-green movement and so on. But it was, yeah. it was largely, as I said, urban in the big cities like Tehran and Tabriz and so on. But the marginalized groups and especially rural areas were not necessarily part of this process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that was one of the kind of uh, key, perhaps, weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the regime had, you know, certain social bases. Mm-hmm. I mean, a strong social bases still has. Mm-hmm. Uh, and which that, again, differentiates it from what is happening today, yeah, mm-hmm. which is a national, has become a really national mm-hmm. movement with a variety of constituencies, yeah, mm-hmm. rural, urban, marginalized, middle classes and right. uh, ethnicities right. and so on. Much more widespread. Though Much I was- more. Much more, but I was I was I was reporting on the two thousand nine uprising in Iran, and I was in the in a lot of the protests. And personally, because of the people whom I interviewed, I like to push back a little bit against the notion that it was you know mostly middle, middle class, class okay. because I talked to all kinds of people, you know, like a grandma okay. from actually Shahriar. I mean, the Shahriar, you know, mechanic, the kinds of people you wouldn't yeah, really yeah. count as being part of the middle class. But I know that yeah. you know ideologically, that's what it was. It was a movement for reform. So I think you know you're right, and others are right. Because because this is something that is kind of, you know, held to be a understood sort of notion of the Green Uprising. It certainly was in its aspiration. It was sort of a middle class movement uh-huh, in that it uh-huh. aspired for these, you know, goals of reforms and elections and these things rather than sort of economic goals, right? Mm-hmm, sure. But I know that you have, if we move it forward a little bit, and you already talked about the Arab Spring, I know that, you know, you have compared actually the woman life freedom movement more to what happened during the Arab Spring. And I wonder if you could, you know, just give us a little bit of your insight and where you see the comparisons between these two uprisings or slash revolutions. Yeah, I mean, the most obvious one is the way in which it really began. They both began. And I think, you know, the triggers. And so in Tunisia, you know, largely it was the self-immolation of uh, Mohamed Bouazizi that somewhat, you know, inspired and inaugurated, you know, the uprising there. Uh, but of course, there was a basis for it, right? Protests had happened earlier on in, you know, the provinces and so forth. But that moment was, uh, I think, very significant. In Egypt, it was the killing of the young man who was reportedly tortured really to death after his arrest that, you know, created this incredible outrage on the part of young people and others. And that was the beginning. But again, you know, these countries and the, their political economies had, you know, had, had, had bases with grievances, socioeconomic and, and political, that they were the triggers. And in Iran, it was, of course, tragic death in the custody. So in some way, these are comparable. And I, I do think also that in, in terms of grievances, and social and economic, but also political, they are all, I would say, comparable. So socioeconomically, these societies are not pretty friendly to the majority of people. And politically, they are basically autocratic. And all of them are in a similar position. But I would say that, however, 
In the Iranian case, there is much more social control of the life world than we had seen in the Arab world ever. I mean, it's not really comparable. Iran, perhaps at this point, is, well, at the point that that incident happened, was more comparable perhaps to Afghanistan under Taliban. And that's why Iranians saying Talibanization of the regime, right? That process has been happening. I think that really matters. And the, and the kernel, in some way, of the life world, maybe in any society, are women. And so I would say the colonization, in some way, of the life world has meant the colonization of you know, women and their mode of thinking and, and, and living and their lifestyle. And yeah, as, as basically in the denial of really citizenship, not much social rights, civil, in some ways, civil even rights. Civil rights in the sense that there are sex segregation in the parks and in, in the institutions, the universities and so forth. So there are much more, I would say, social and cultural grievances in Iran than you have had in the Arab world prior to their uprising. Mm -hmm. You had a piece out in October in New Lines magazine, A Global Iran is Born, which was an interview that was published in Etamot newspaper on October 10th and then translated and published in New Lines magazine. And you mentioned in that piece, you point to the issue of dignity and life, which is comparable between what happened in the Arab Spring and then in the Women Life Freedom Movement, which of course is also reflected in Shervin Hajipur's song, Baraye, which last night yes. won a Grammy for uh, you know, the first song ever to be given an award for social change, a song for social change. It was announced by the first lady, Jill Biden. You know, the song is obviously written from tweets by ordinary Iranians. And we really get this sense for how much this movement really is about a sense of dignity and a normal life and a respect of nature and environment and animals and, and human beings and sort of this, you know, basic decency toward life. Um, and you write in your piece, when you, when you talk about a global Iran, that you're talking about a collective, quote, collective of people separated by geography, but very much together in feelings, in concerns, and in dreams, end quote. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how do you think this, this notion or this sense of a global Iran, which I think we all feel and we know because of this, the huge waves of migration that have happened over the last 40 years, right? right. Um, these layers and layers of expatriate Iranians all over the world, that there is, in fact, this global sort of network or coalition of Iranians feeling what you write in your piece. And I wonder, if, how is that, do you think, helping the cause of Iranians who are still living in Iran and trying to really bring about a change to their current political situation? Is it helping them? Is it, what, what, how do you see that, that dynamic working out? Sure. Uh, yes, I think prior, I would say prior to the Green Movement, I, I think we had perhaps two Iran, of Iran of uh, Iranians who live in Iran and those who uh, lived outside. And I think there was some sort of degree of, a good degree of, I would say, separation and even some kind of a suspicion that those people who left, that they didn't care much about what was happening or they couldn't stand by the kind of troubles that others have endured. And so they left for a you know, more comfortable life. I think this changed in some way during the Green Movement. I think there was a good degree of sort of unity and togetherness and shared feeling between the two 
sides, the two Iran. But I think in the current uprising, this has been, I think, pretty unprecedented in terms of the identity of concerns and the dream of, you know, a, a different kind of Iran that both outside and insiders really share. I mean, one reason, of course, has the number of Iranians have outside have increased, and there are millions now. But also, I think the new communication, I think, technology has helped to maintain much more, a much closer connection. The, you know, the existence of all these videos and so on, one could watch and actually feel that as if one is in the streets of Mashhad, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what was happening. And there is this kind of solidifies in some way that shared feelings. And I think Iranians, you know, outside have been pretty instrumental in in their support for a kind of meaningful change in Iran. And I think Iranians inside Iran also realize it because they also are connected much better to what is happening outside Iran than they used to be in the past. So the connections and and the closeness has been possible on both sides. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Uh, And there is some kind of appreciation, I think, in some way of both sides. And in this sense, I think, you know, this global Iran somewhat has been generated. And a lot of, as you know, Iranians living in America, Europe, or wherever, they kind of live as if that they live and, and think constantly about Iran. Yes. Yeah. A lot of their lives seems to be even temporary, although it could be a permanent temporariness, you know, in the sense that, you know, they have this dream of, you know, just going back to Iran and they are living here temporary, but this can <laughs> practically last forever. Mm-hmm. And I think this is also a situation of many, you know, the diaspora population in the grip of, you know, certain political constraints in the home country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, how did you feel yourself as an ex, you know, expatriate who very much thinks and works on these developments in Iran? How did you personally feel about what was happening? And I mean, was it is it different from previous waves of uprisings that you've seen in post-revolutionary Iran? It it was. I mean, it was. I was, uh, of course, like, you know, many others, I was uh, totally surprised and I didn't expect. Although I had written about, you know, both in the context of the Arab countries and uh, in Iran, that the dynamics of the struggle that is, has been going on in the region and also in Iran, that is this continuous everyday struggle for creating new norms and practices, more liberating norms and practices in society has been going on for now for decades. But it was predictable that at some point this could, this quiet encroachment actually, Mm -hmm. that at some point became really very unquiet, (laughs) noisy Uh, uh, mm -hmm. encroachment and aggressive encroachment would lead to a turning point because the other side, that is the adversaries, the state and power, would also react. And I think this, what happened in the case of Mahsa Amini and the sort of women wanting to have you know, control over their lives as human beings, you know, as citizens. And and they have been struggling for this for decades on a daily basis in the workplaces, in the parks, in the buses, in the 
education system and in the courthouses. And they have been, in my view, have been successful in pushing the boundaries and winning new trenches as they move forward and teaching to their children. And that's key, teaching to their children. And now those children have taken the, what you call the banner of their elders and they are pushing forward. And when the, the sort of politics at the top, now this is the politics at the bottom, right? Politics at the top changed. That is what in Iran they called yek nabakhti, or homogeneity of all the, source, all the powers, right? Executive and parliament and presidency and judiciary and so on became one, all the hardliners. Then they began to basically say, okay, that's enough, stop, stop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. and it's going too so far. he's going too far. So here they are pushing over there. They are saying stop, and in fact they want to get, in fact, regain. That's the thing, not just stop, regain again the life world, the everyday life of people. And the result was, of course, this incredible, and the role of women have been quite incredible and 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 unique. You know, in terms of not only the recognition of the dignity of women and beyond that the dignity of human being, but also recognition of the centrality of women's question within a big uprising, recognition by men, also recognition by a lot of traditional women who actually do wear, like my mother, a hijab and so forth. And that is, I think, quite unprecedented and extraordinary. Yes. And, you know, I mean, it's it's been such an inspirational movement in the ways that you just described. And you've also written about this sort of social non-movement, which has been such an interesting way of thinking about things, about how women really have pushed those boundaries on a daily basis through the ways that you describe, whether it's through wearing the hijab less tightly or pushing in the courts and on the streets and in politics and elsewhere. But when we look at you know the region, and we just talked about the Arab Spring, of course, the outcome of the movements in the region are not at all uplifting. You know, we've seen this wave of authoritarianism, the Arab winter, which you have also written about, the really sort of depression of those movements and the strong hand of authoritarians and dictators in the end winning the, 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 the calculations and the dynamics. And not least, even recently in Tunisia, the one example that we could hold up, you know, in the Arab world saying Tunisia managed to transition from the dictatorship to a democratic system. Even there, K. Said, of course, has now instituted a constitution that is more restrictive than what existed under Ben Ali. And so I wonder, I mean, if you, and yet we don't want to compare what's happening in Iran to the to what happened in the Arab world, yeah, yeah. not only because we want to have a better outcome of it. And I'm, you know, and I'm just wondering, like, we're without asking you to look into your crystal ball as, you know, as a social scientist who's studied these movements for decades and who's experienced them as a human being yourself, right? In 1970s yeah. Iran and onward in the waves of protests that have happened in Iran. What, what, what is your, I don't know, what, <laughs> what do you think? Where are we heading? What's going to happen to Iran? Where do you see this unfolding? All I can say is that, well, it's not just all I can say, but <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of the things I can say is that things are not inevitable. I mean, the dynamics of revolutions are very complex, and in the sense that the dynamics 
are not restricted or the, the process is not restricted within a you know national government, nation state, but rather has been influenced by a variety of happenings here and there outside and so on. Now, the fact that, look, the fact that Arab Spring, at least at the political level in terms of democratization, you know, has failed, should, or one would expect, <laughs> to lead a, for a different outcome elsewhere. Because the idea is that uh, people are supposed to learn, right? Uh, not only, of course, regimes learn, right? The adversaries learn from each other to stop change, but also people learn to push for change. In other words, what happened in the Arab Spring is not necessarily the outcome that perhaps, you know, Iran should experience, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, and if there, are, if there are, as I say, attention to what happened there, try to address those. So that's, the, I think, the, uh, the most important thing I can really say. Yes, I mean, they did, let, they, they did lead to, you know, again, authoritarianism, and one can discuss it or, or why, you know, they happened. But let me also add that while kind of a, as a nuance is that although at the political level things didn't change, at a social and cultural level, a lot has changed, and I think that's key. I've tried to address those changes at the grassroots level among people, among women, among young people, about subjectivities in terms of in terms of relations of hierarchy in the education system and so on, in farms, factories, families, and these things matter. I think, and I think significant changes happen, and I have tried to address those in my latest book, Revolutionary Life: The Everyday of the. Arab Spring. You correctly brought the example of Case Said and what happened in Tunisia. But over there, also, there has been incredible resistance against Case Said, who once was a kind of a savior. He no, is no longer a savior. And the indication of last elections, it, it was a defeat, really, in terms of participation. It was very low, incredibly low, so that actually it is an illegitimate, in some way, elections. And, and in other words, because the societies have been transformed and they do not necessarily buy what you know certain populist leader rises up and wants to to do. I think in, in the context of Iran, and the fact that you are asking me this question shows also the awareness that we are aware of what happened elsewhere, and it is we should be addressing, I think, the situation that we are at now. And I think a lot of people are thinking mm-hmm. to avoid, you know, that kind of outcome. Mm-hmm, for sure. And it's an unfolding story. And as yes. it unfolds, we will be reading you closely, uh, you know, watching closely and and hoping for the best and working toward the best, I suppose. And yes. thank you so much for being on this program, for giving us your insights from the personal to the intellectual and your work, your writing. It has been really a pleasure having you and talking to you about these momentous and historical events that have been taking shape. Thank you so much, Nahid, again, for the opportunity to reflect on some of these, I think, important issues that a lot of our, you know, fellow citizens also think about. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Professor Bayot. Take care. Bye-bye.
All right, that wraps up our interview for this week. Thank you for listening. My guest was Osef Bayot. He's the Catherine and Bruce Bastian Professor of Global and Transnational Studies and Professor of Sociology and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. You were listening to an episode of Woman, Life, Freedom, All In on Iran, broadcast to you from the University of Texas at Austin. I'm your host, Nahid Siamdust. Until next time, Jinjian Azadi, Zan Zendegi Azadi. Zendegi.